You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Trees have a bad reputation for being dangerous and this may or may not be for good reason depending on the particular tree in question. In this episode, we have back on the show consulting arborist Gary Moran of the excellent Trees Etc. Twitter account, at ArborSmarty. He's going to walk us through some of the signs of a tree that's actually dangerous, so that we can walk a little bit more confidently under most of the trees that we see around the place in our everyday life. G'day Gary, welcome back mate. Excited to be back Dan, thanks for uh, having me back and last uh, episode must have been somewhat of a success since you invited me back again, thank you. It was, mate. I think people have really loved it, and I'm not sure if that's just because you have a large Twitter reach or if people just really love the topic or if people really resonate with you, but it is one of our more popular episodes of recent episodes, so thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks again. So I guess let's kick this episode off with talking about some of the, I guess, biggest reasons why a tree may be risky. How can damage to a tree make it more dangerous, Gary? There's a couple of different types of damage that can cause elevated risk concerns with trees. One might be root damage from from development activities such as trenching or paving, excavation, those type of things, which if that's done too close to the tree and enters what's called a structural root zone, the structural root zone is the area reasonably close to the tree within, say, two to three meters that can compromise the stability of a tree. And another one would be Excessive pruning, that one might be a little bit harder for your listeners to understand because the tree's branches and its parts are a dynamic system. And when we upset those dynamics by exposing new bra- or, excuse me, exposing branches to new wind loads from new directions that they haven't seen before, through those you know, excessive mutilation types of pruning and even removing just a few branches can elevate the potential for branch failure. Right. And I guess when we're talking about malpruning, there's a lot of theory behind pruning, and that's probably for another episode. And I guess I would point our listeners to Cass Turnbull's wonderful videos with Plant Amnesty because they, they've sort of taught me about pruning and I've learned a lot from those videos personally. Sure. Like one point that I would add there is I always try to advise my clients is like, what is your objective regarding pruning? And then try to remove the minimum amount of live material from the tree to achieve that objective. So, for example, if you're worried about a branch falling on your house, maybe just removing a couple of small tertiary branches off the ends of the branch would lighten the load enough to substantially reduce the risk of branch failure, as opposed to remove every single branch that projects toward your house and upsets mm-hmm. the balance of the tree and disturbs those wind dynamics like we spoke about a moment ago. Totally. And there are also other forms of damage, for example, like cankers and stuff like that. Can you speak on other forms of damage, Gary? Yes, certainly. Some of those cankers and fungal brackets and those types of things uh, can happen during inadvertent mechanical damage to trees, such as maybe being bumped with an excavator or some similar type of earth-moving equipment during construction of the house or adjacent roads. I see that quite often in my consultations. Yeah. And 
when we see those types of things, that is a sign that there may be some decay in there, which might warrant a call to someone like myself to assess the severity of it and what precautions could take place to, if any, to you know minimize risks. Totally. And what signs are we looking for there, Gary? The length and size of the decay. And, and another thing, which I'll try to convey this point uh, through a podcast, is what's called reaction timber around the wound or, or decay. Like a healthy tree's got the ability to put on what's called rolling ribs of timber or reaction wood that strengthens that injury. Yeah. And usually if the tree is not healthy, it doesn't have the ability to put on those, those ribs of reaction timber around the wound, and there might be some health issues evident in the tree also, like a reduction in foliage density or large diameter dead wood. And when we put those few components together, then more concerns might be in place than just a small wound in the tree with a small fungal uh, bracket. Right. Okay. And as you've said as well, you know, before you sort of go ahead and make your own assessments from home, it might be a smart idea to give an arborist a call to come and check out that tree. That is 100% right, Dan. So what are some signs, you know, when we're looking at the bark? Can we scratch the bark and have a look? Or what would you say are some signs when we're looking at bark? As far as risk goes, one of the things that I get asked often is people are concerned with cracks in the bark. And these cracks can be what are called frost cracks or bark expansion cracks. And often, particularly in the eucalypts that I look at in Australia, we get a tree that's growing quite healthily and the bark doesn't quite grow at the same rate as the cambium layer does underneath it, and the bark splits a little bit. This is quite normal in many species. And again, you could check this to yourself by, you know, inserting a like a small pen knife or something like that in there. And, and if that doesn't go into the structural timber behind the bark, then it is just that a bark expansion crack and nothing to be concerned about. Mm, that's awesome. Have you ever seen those yourself on eucalypts in your area, Dan? Thinking about it, I guess it just depends on the species because you sort of get to know each species and each one sort of does have its own personality in the bark. So, you know, if it was something like an oak and you saw a, you know, a fissure up it, that would be a different thing than many types of eucalypts, which are well known to have sort of normal fissures in the bark. Many species of eucalypts anyway are peeling bark each year, like a ribbon gum or, you know, something like that. That's 100% true. And if we, say, look at the cork oak trees in Portugal and other places, they remove all of the bark for them annually. And that doesn't, or not annually, every several years. I don't know the frequency. And that doesn't harm a tree. So the bark in itself is one small indicator of things and not necessarily something to be alarmed at. Like I stated before, if there's small cracks or some peeling or those types of things. We do see in many of our local species where there's a true crack in the bark where there's a clear separation in it. It's not just the, the bark texture of issues like you spoke about. And you, know, you might be able to put your finger inside that crack in the bark. But however, that's only the bark that's cracked and not the structural timber behind it. And to the lay person, and I received lots of phone calls about this, oh, there's a crack in my tree. Can you please come and have a look at it? I'm worried about you know the safety of my property. And you know, 19, 19 times out of 20, it's a bark expansion crack. Okay. And bark is a non-technical term as well. It may or may not be an important structure in the tree. Is that right? That is right. So when we talk about, you know, signs of fungus and stuff like that, is there a difference between lichen and sort of damaging types of fungus? Uh, I would have to say being in such a hot and dry place that lichen isn't my area of expertise, but my understanding is that 
lichen, you know, typically grows in a moister climate, and it's really just on the outside of the bark of the tree, and isn't and doesn't play a factor in potential compromised structure of the tree. Whereas certain types of fungal fruiting bodies are a sign that there's you know wet decaying wood inside the tree which they are living on. Like as we discussed earlier in the episode, depending on the level of decay, health of the tree, other supporting timbers could be a real concern. That's great to know. Mm -hmm. When I assess a tree and I do see a, a fungal fruiting body on the tree, that makes me stop and have that little bit extra level of concern about that assessment and say, hey, there's a problem here. How serious is it? You know, let's get the mallet out, do some sounding, you know, look at other things in more detail. Right. And what are you looking for with the sounding with the mallet? Um, excessive hollowing or drumming sounds when striking uh, like anywhere around that fungal fruiting body. Right. And that I guess that means that there's sort of dead wood and rot going on inside. Yeah, it could be excessively hollow. Now, having said that, older trees typically are hollow to some extent and maybe like a hollow tube in your bicycle, just because something's hollow doesn't mean it's not structurally sound. It depends how how excessively hollow something is. And there is a standard that looks at that, and it says as long as something has 30% wall thickness, then we deem it to be safe. That's a, a general guideline, let's say. That's sort of one-third. I mean, I know that 30% is almost a third there. So that one-third rule sort of comes up time and time again with trees, I've found. Yeah, and uh, maybe our listeners too can imagine that. that That's quite a hollow tree at 30%. Mm. But that standard still deems that to be safe. There's other things to look there for too, but just because a tree has a, a little bit of termite damage on the inside or is hollow for some other reasons doesn't necessarily make it unstable. And I guess we can talk about the architecture of trees. What do you look for when you look at the architecture of a tree to make sure that it's safe? I always assess a tree from the ground up. I look at the, bus the buttressing of a tree, so where the roots meet the ground, and there's typically where they taper outwards. And sometimes, particularly on a site that's been developed, we don't see that taper. It looks more like an old colleague once said, a pole in a hole. And that can be concerning because that tells us that the tree's been buried. There might be some root damage or, or smothering of roots that have made them dysfunctional. And, and again, if that coincides with some declining health of the tree that may raise some level of concern about the stability of the tree. I've seen as well people sort of piling up lawn clippings and stuff around the base as well, and that's not good. No, that's not good. We're not supposed to pile mulches or lawn clippings or any of these things those up against the base of trees or probably plants as it can cause uh, cholera. And then we were talking about some other things like in the structure of the tree. We might look at how many stems it has if, say, a tree divides into two stems near ground level, depending on the species. And that could be an area of concern, depending on how tight that union is. The tighter that that union becomes more V-shaped as opposed to U-shaped, bark can be trapped in that, inside that union as opposed to nice overlapping layers of timber that create a strong union. And that's what's, in, that's what's called an included bark union. And depending on the nature of that, it's hard to get into all the details here in just a few moments. That also can be of a concern. And those similar types of included bark unions can be the ways that our branches are attached to trunks too. And that's one of the things, it's a common defect that we see in our assessment. And it doesn't, it rarely means we have to remove the tree. It can often be resolved by some minor pruning to take a little bit of leverage off that 
union that we've recognized as being not as strong as it could be. Right. I guess that that's going to cause structural weaknesses, as you said. So, and you've said that you would just remove a couple of branches to remove the weight. At what point would you remove a whole branch out of that V and just leave one remaining branch? Uh, that might depend on assessing the stability of the union. If we thought it didn't have sufficient supporting timber to support that piece or that part of the tree that it was supporting had very limited pruning options to try to retain it that were going to result in such low amenity of the tree or not be able to remove enough material to stabilize the union, then we might have to remove the whole side or in some cases remove the whole tree. So as we're looking at the structure of a tree, what else sort of screams out to you, this tree is unsafe? Another attribute that we look at in the structure of a tree would be what's called branch taper, branch elongation, and foliage distribution. And so branches that have poor taper mean they stay the same diameter for a very long distance, and the foliage tends to be at the end of the branch as opposed to evenly distributed along the branch have a higher propensity for failure. Right, that makes sense because all the weight is, or all the energy is sort of being pushed out rather than, you know, being lighter on the edges and heavier on the middle. That's right. And we can make something stronger by adding taper to it. Like that's why something like a fishing rod isn't the same diameter for the whole length. It's thick at one end and very thin at the other end to allow it to bend and flex. And so that taper helps. But sometimes tree branches and sometimes Species have that propensity to have suboptimal branch taper, which can be concerning in some instances. And what about if you see a tree that's leaning? What a great question, Dan. I get asked this often too. A leaning tree isn't necessarily dangerous. The first question I would ask myself during an assessment is why is the tree leaning? And often when I get called to these things, it's because the tree is having a normal phototropic growth response to light competition from adjacent trees. So that's a fancy way of saying it's growing towards an open light source, and that light source might be slightly off to the side. And then just to expand on that a little bit, if we look at that tree and the way it grows away from that larger adjacent tree, it might start out in its early years growing at somewhat of an angle. And then we'll see as we look farther up the tree is what's called crown or canopy correction, where the tree starts to turn more upright and vertical. And so that's a sign of a leaning tree, but a stable tree. When we see a tree that grows out at an angle and there's no other trees around it and there's no sign of crown or canopy correction, that's when there's more concerns about the tree being stable. Does that make sense? I guess so, because one on the one hand, we've got a tree that's sort of growing in a normal way and it's supporting itself and putting on tissues in a way that allows it to grow towards light. And when we're looking at a tree in an open field that has a lean to it, I would sort of wonder if maybe there might be a, a soil issue or something like that where the roots are sort of coming apart or you know, it's sort of heavy on the top and it's leaning in an unsafe way. Would that be right? That's exactly right, Dan. Another area I'd like to expand on that, and this applies to more suburban situations where new developments are happening around it. We see a tree that's leaning, but then there's some crown correction in it. And I would ask myself, ah, what's happened here? Uh, adjacent trees have been removed to, to build this oh. house. And so then, then there's some other concerns that could be happening. It's like, oh, the tree doesn't look too bad because we see some crown correction. However, since we've exposed this tree to 
all sorts of new wind loading by removing all the adjacent trees that can again change the wind dynamics within you know within the crown of the tree causing an elevated potential for branch failure and some other things so not good to expose trees all by themselves that have grown with a group of other trees right and i guess maybe at that point it might be a good time to call in an arborist to sort of consult and check on that tree and make an assessment that's that's right again dan and sometimes these things can be resolved if there is some concerns due to some minor you know some minor pruning to the tree to shorten the length of branches or some crown thinning or other types to allow the tree to give it some time to adapt to the new circumstances that we forced upon it fantastic thank you gary can you tell me about girdling i can that's um it's something we don't always see because it happens underground but sometimes a root can grow in circles around the tree and constrict other roots Oftentimes, this happens from poor, I don't know, poor work at a nursery or if you grew the tree yourself where, where they become root-bound and those things can lead to girdling roots. And we should prune those things off of the pair of secateurs before we put the plant in the ground, um, as you would know. Right, yeah. And it's because it's in a pot, you know, the roots are all circling around, they get used to that, and then they're just going to constrict each other. Or another one I've seen is when you're planting in clay and you sort of just plop it straight in and it's really heavy clay and the tree sort of treats that clay as another pot there and it's going to encircle itself again. Well, one point I would make regarding that, that clay and that creating that round, uh, that round hole in the ground where it keeps those girdling roots or those circling roots happening is probably the worst way you could plant a tree is in that hard clay and do it with a mechanical auger to dig a round cylindrical hole. And then maybe some of your listeners have seen that. And when that mechanical auger digs that hole, the size of this hole becomes very hard and almost glazed in appearance. And then the tree really has no chance or limited chance to extend its roots on the outside, outside that hole. And one or two years later, we'll check that tree, grab the trunk, give it a little shake, and it's still wobbling in the hole because it was unable to establish its root system properly. So what advice do you have for planting in such a, an environment, Gary? What I tell my clients to do is to dig a walk and not a hole. So yeah, the size of a cooking walk where it's where it spreads outwards in that type of shape, and that will allow those those roots to to extend outwards instead of spin around in that cylindrical hole, if that makes sense. Okay. So in a walk you mean sort of like it it narrows down towards the bottom there. Yeah, that's right. It's wide. Yeah, that's right. Quite wide at the top. Mm. And narrows down somewhat towards the bottom. The exact the exact same shape as a cooking wok. Right. I've heard as well that digging in a square shape can help as well. I wonder what would you say about cutting in like a square wok shape so that they don't so the roots don't circle round. They sort of hit the hard side and then push through. I'm not sure if that's a myth or not. I'm not sure if that is either. I would say it would be beneficial. And just back to my original point, that's the worst thing that we can do is you know dig a like a narrow round hole and glaze the sides uh, with whether that be with a spade or or with a mechanical type auger or otherwise uh, anything's an improvement over that <laughs> yep good advice thank you gary and what about say if we leave ties around the the trunk or something like that and i guess i've seen as in my work as a maintenance gardener you know sometimes someone has left a tie in and whether it's a zippy tie or whether it's, you know, maybe it's a wire, a bit of wire, or even I've seen other types of materials that just sort of choke out a tree, and I've heard that being called girdling as well. Sure. Let's touch on your question 
there, Dan, from two different perspectives. One, there's the physical damage that using hard, tight ties like can cause to a young tree. You know, simply damage its tissue and and create wounds that it might not recover from. So that's one. So we should use the soft type material, like you know, strips of an old T-shirt or or Hessian sacks or something like that, and not hard wires or zip ties or those things that are more likely to cut into a tree's tissue. So that's number one. And then the second point I would like to make, which is maybe a little bit more difficult to understand, is that when we're trying to establish trees, that the purpose of putting stakes around a tree is not to prevent it from moving. The purpose is to prevent it from failing. And so the tree should be able to bend a considerable distance in either direction before the, the staking system supports it. And if that doesn't happen, it's being really restricted and it can't move. The tree won't move from side to side a little bit in the wind and break down little bits of wood fiber that force it to grow back being stronger and to develop what's called a strong trunk with good trunk taper. And your listeners might be able to relate to that. That's what happens when we go to the gym and lift some weights, right? We pump that iron and that breaks down little muscular cells. And then our muscles know that we need to grow back bigger and stronger. To support that new load. A tree is the same with the, with the staking principle that I just described. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense when you say it's like going to the gym and, you know, by trying to overly mother our plants, we might actually be setting them back a little bit. I see it far too often is that someone will try to do the right thing by, to establish a tree by putting several stakes around it, several ties, so the thing cannot move one single millimeter. Then when it comes time, to, they think the tree is established because it's been there for a year or so. Pull the stakes off. First large wind, the tree snaps in half. That makes a lot of sense. The tree had no reason to, to put on strengthening timbers because it didn't move. Like It, it needs to flex in, in those winds to become a strong tree. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense, Gary. Something I've seen as well is with those ties, you know, you might have the lateral growth as the branch is as the branches and the trunk sort of become thicker, you know, as they grow outwardly, as you can imagine, I'm hoping the listeners can imagine that, they'll sort of swallow up the tie as well. You know, maybe it's a wire tie or a zippy tie or something like that. And at some point, the tie may even completely disappear underneath that lateral growth. And I suppose that that's going to create quite a weak spot as well. It potentially can. And the point that I would make to that is if a part of the tree has grown over a tie or how long has it been like under stakes and ties for? A tree should never be staked for more than 12 months. If you have a tree that's staked for more than 12 months and it's still un- if it's still unstable for some reason, then it's time to simply replace it. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's, it's not establishing its root system for some reason or another. Like I said, it could be bad practice at the nursery, other girdling roots and things like we've talked about before. 12 months, it should, be, it should be established and stable. Okay. So we can also talk about organisms as being a cause for tree decay. What are some of the main pests that you see causing damage in trees? Sure. The two organisms that I'm able to assess are termites or white ants, as we call them sometimes in Australia, and borers, so boring insects. And I'll probably start with white ants or termites, Ben, in that I, I'm often asked, oh, my goodness, a homeowner is concerned. Uh, my 
pest control guy said that there's termites in my tree. And so I want to remove this tree because I'm worried about my house being attacked by termites. And, and I quickly advised them saying that, hey, termites are just part of the Australian landscape and in other, and in other countries too. And removing this tree is not going to remove termites from the landscape. And so the most important thing is that you have your house checked and your house treated for termites to make sure it's safe. Removing the tree is not going to solve the issue. And then secondly, and again, termites are normal, are often found in trees. And if we go back to that, that hollowing rule of 30%, you know, termites typically eat some of the heartwood uh, out of the center of the tree as the tree actively grows on the outside. And the tree and the termites keep in a nice little check for themselves, and there's nothing really to be concerned about. And again, if we go back to other parts of that assessment, if we think there's termites in a tree and then the tree is not very healthy for some reason, and then there might be concerns that maybe the termites are getting on top of this tree or the tree is not healthy for other reasons, which might allow the termites to get on top. But generally, in healthy trees, termites are rarely an issue. As I said, it gets some real elevated concerns from clients about termites. And 99 times out of 100 with trees, I really like to downplay those concerns and say, uh, it's okay, termites and trees live together. It's quite common. Just make sure your house is checked by your pest controller regularly. Yeah, removing the tree isn't going to solve the issue, if in fact there is an issue. Right. Can you explain what you mean by heartwood? Uh, heartwood, that is what your listeners would probably see if they've ever cut through a log or some firewood is the darker is the darker tissue that's on the inside the center of the tree which is not alive and so that's the that's the tissue that the termites generally eat that's kind of a weird concept that the middle of the tree wouldn't be alive and that the living tissue of the tree would actually be on the outside yeah that is a bit of a strange uh, a strange concept for some people to understand but Oh, many of your listeners have seen and seen some of the picture of the ancient trees on Twitter that are completely hollow and only barely standing by a couple of ribs because that's where that functioning tissue and living tissue is, is on the, you know, is on the outside of the trunk, not on the inside. So can you tell me a little bit about borers, Gary? Yeah, borers, they... They get a, a little bit of a bad name as a pest for trees, too. And longicorn beetles and other types of borers, we might see them as um, little entry and exit holes in a tree. And sometimes we see a little bit of keno coming out of those exit holes. So keno is a fancy word for tree sap that you may have noticed in your time of looking at gum trees, Dan. And borers are usually a secondary sign of some other health problem when there's a lot of borers in a tree. Borers tend to attack trees that are under health or some other environmental stresses for other reasons. And then the tree doesn't have those aleopaths to fight off those insects. And then the borers can win that battle against the tree in that case. But generally, a healthy tree that's well adapted to its environment isn't overcome by borers. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And just to expand on that, I'll, uh, I might have a client that say, there's borers in this tree. I'm worried about them attacking all my other trees. And now since there's borer here, there's borers here, all of my trees are going to die. And again, try not to raise the alarm. So nah, it's okay. The reason this tree is dying because it's a poor species for the area or there's been too much development around it. And the borers just recognize it as a stress tree. And so they're able to overtake it for the, um, for the reasons that I just explained. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. 
My wife's grandparents have had a tree just outside of their house that have recently been taken over by borers. And they had an arborist come out and assess it. And the arborist decided that, yes, this tree had to go because it was unsafe. Now, the first thing that they noticed was there are a lot of ants around the tree. So can you speak on if there's a lot of ants around a tree, what can that possibly mean? Well, that's, it's hard to say from that description, Dan. I see ants around trees often. And again, I just can't think of a circumstance where I've advised someone that we had to take some special management to the tree due to, ant, due to ants being around it. The ants were the sign that Pa first noticed that there was a problem there. And he called up and he said, there's a lot of ants around. And the arborist came out and checked and said, no, these ants are eating the borers. Are eating the borers. Well, you have to ask an entomologist on, on that one. You're getting outside of my area of expertise. Oh. <laughs> okay, good to know. So I guess the ants could have been doing anything. They could have been perfectly happy or I guess that, that was the answer I was looking for. Ants can be perfectly happy. You know, ants can be just a sign of anything, you know. Sometimes they're mining aphids. Sometimes they're just doing who knows what. So, <laughs> exactly. So, what are some other signs of sort of unhealthy trees, Gary, that we haven't touched on yet? Some good signs of unhealthy trees are, is are having is having a good look at the foliage, and so we're looking for the density of the foliage, the distribution of the foliage, the color of the foliage, right, and the size. And it takes a little bit of experience to know what these things should look like on a range of species of trees. But for our listeners out there, they might be able to tell if there's a change in some of these attributes within the trees in their own garden, just over a couple of species, if that makes sense. And so, for example, when the foliage density starts to get quite reduced or it looks very thin and we can see up through that canopy, that's a clear sign that, that there might be a health or pest problem there for them to be concerned about. And then if there's a change in the distribution of the foliage, like, for example, the ends of the branches start to get really thin and the tree starts to send out some epicormic growth right, from the trunk and from the, the branches closer to the trunk attachment, that's also concerning as that distribution change, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And we talked about epicormic growth in episode 22, the last time yeah. that you were on the show. And I guess that what we're talking about here is sort of like little branches that have leaves on them that emerge from beneath the bark as opposed to from the tips of the branches. Exactly. And just to expand on that, as a healthy tree grows from the periphery of its canopy, and a tree that's not healthy tends to grow with, through that epicormic growth, as you were just discussing, from internal parts of the tree, from the trunk, from the insides of branches near the trunk, and not from, not from the periphery again. And some other points that we talked about in, with the foliage was, was the foliage color also. And that's something we see often is when a, a foliage of a tree starts to become quite chlorotic or it looks yellow in color instead of that nice lush green. And that could be a sign of trouble too. Like I was just in a garden uh, the other day where the foliage around many trees, shrubs, plants in the garden was, was yellow, chlorotic, and it took a while of diagnosing to go through it. And then we worked out that the client was using excessive amounts of, of fertilizer within her garden. And it wasn't typical fertilizer that we would recommend for trees or plants being a nice slow release fertilizer. She was using a, um, you know, a high phosphorus based fertilizer that's more, that's better directed towards lawns and grasses than to trees and certain shrubs. Okay. 
So that's, uh, I guess, how long did it take you to figure out that that was what was going on? Approximately 40 minutes. By the time I'd looked at several different trees on the property and realized it extended into shrubs, discussed about her irrigation regimes and other things that came down that worked out that she was using fertilizer. And then a little bit more digging found out what type of fertilizer it was and and the rate of her application. It, It was a clear case of fertilizer burn, knowing that the trees and shrubs that were in her garden, they were well watered and the species were well adapted to the area. Mm. That is one of the benefits of having a professional come out and check it because the client may not have necessarily realized that that specific problem was what was going wrong there. That was exactly true in this case, Dan, because the client prior to her consultation with me had engaged a gardener type person who was trying to fix this fertilizer issue through pruning. And this pruning was quite substandard. Luckily, not much of it occurred in some good amenity levels of the trees will still be able to rate, to be retained um, once we flush this fertilizer through the soil through excessive irrigation for a couple of weeks. Right. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you were on board to sort of help her out with that because also excessive irrigation can be a problem long term as well. It, it can. Yes, it can. It, that um, trees need oxygen to survive, and so their roots need to have air and. If we prevent that air from going to them, whether that be through excessive flooding, irrigation, or some other factors, like say if there's a natural gas leak in the area that displaces all of the oxygen from the soil, that's when we can see a very rapid decline of a tree. Almost overnight, a tree will turn brown for a gas for a gas leak yeah, because they've lost their ability to take in oxygen through the roots. And that's not a mistake when you say oxygen, because I think a lot of people will probably be thinking, no, trees breathe in carbon dioxide, not oxygen. Correct. So I guess they breathe in oxygen through their roots. They do. So when are trees at their most dangerous, Gary? When are trees at their most dangerous? That's hard to positively identify. One thing I would suggest is one of, is one of the trees overmature. It's you know, many, many decades old, and it's in such a condition that we see its health starting to decline. And the tree's what's doing called retrenching. It's starting to get smaller in size through maybe a couple of branch failures, a little bit of dieback, those type of things. So that's one area is when a tree is overmature. And then that other area, like we said, is when the environment around a tree starts to, starts to become manipulated through a range of suburban or development activities, such as, like we talked about, excessive pruning, trenching, excavation, removal of adjacent trees, etc. Then the risks associated with whole tree failure or branch failure um, raise exponentially of something that was quite benign and safe before we meddled with it, if you will. Right. And how does weather play into tree safety? Great question. This is, um, pertains to Australia and other areas. But firstly, you're at the most risk of being injured by a tree or your property damage during storms. A full stop. I get asked a lot about hot weather with our trees, and there's a small spike in branch failure cases during hot weather. But if we talk to our emergency service people, our SES and local councils and those types of people who, who might clean up trees after a storm event, they will say that they will just confirm what I just said and say that uh, there's a small spike in in branch failures. However, the parts tend to be much smaller and there's far less of them. For example, the council might 
clean up five branches or something instead of 5,000 after a big storm event, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, so it's high winds, the rain, these sorts of things. High winds, rain, yeah, those types of things. And we've had a recent tragedy here in our local area where there was a person that was struck by a falling tree while driving her car. And that was in a, um, in a storm event. And it's one thing I would like to point out to listeners uh, for a range of reasons, including trees, that we're not, not necessarily safe in our little rolling bubbles if, <laughs> and that sometimes we just need to stay home. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And mm. I wonder if, in, I mean, I guess this isn't going to be a huge issue where you or I live, right, in, a, in these parts of Australia. But in areas that receive snowfall, and I know this isn't your expertise, but would you say that that would cause an, an additional layer of stress, that weight of snow? Snowfall to, to a certain extent, yes, but ice storms are far worse. I've been to some conferences and spoken with some, you know, experts from overseas, and they've talked about the devastation to large, large populations of trees from ice storms. The freezing rain gets on the branches and the tree and its structure just simply cannot bear the, bear the weight. And it is an apocalypse in certain areas in the worst cases that I've heard. That's quite sad to see, actually. It looks like a, a tornado or a hurricane has passed through the area. Oh, absolutely. And I imagine as well as that water sort of freezes and expands, that's going to cause additional stress as well? Uh, possibly. The, the failures that I've seen are more, are more related to the excessive weight on the tree from the freezing rain. It's not necessarily from the freezing or the cold temperatures itself. Okay. That makes sense. So where would you say are the safest places to stay during a sort of a severe weather event and you're worried about trees? That would be in a solid structure such as your home or building. And as we just stated, it's not a good time to be out driving, camping in less sturdy structures such as carports, sheds, those types of things. Right. Okay. So we've just spent about, you know, over half an hour talking about trees and how dangerous they are. But can you sort of bring us back down to earth a little bit, Gary? How dangerous actually are trees? We spoke briefly in the beginning, Dan, that your chances of being killed by a tree, there's some different statistics out there, but one that I found is one in five million. And that's an extremely low risk. And I should add to that, that your chance of being killed by a tree whilst inside your house is one in 190 million. That's so low, it's almost immeasurable. Mm -hmm. And if we put that in context with some other things, If we look at driving our car again, which we were just speaking about, that's one in 20,000. And so if we go back, if we look at those two things, one in 190 million to one in 20,000, there's a massive discrepancy in those numbers. And that puts in pretty good context of of our willingness to jump in our car and thinking it's a relatively safe activity to some people's risk-averse approach to trees, which is really unfounded in these statistics. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, so that's good to hear. So trees aren't necessarily as risky as what we might think, especially when they're healthy trees. Especially. And I'll add a couple more interesting little anecdotes to that that your listeners might appreciate, is that if you're, if you're lying in bed and you're worried about a tree might fall in your house and kill you, you're 450 times more likely to die from falling out of bed than you actually are to be killed by the tree. So that, it sounds like a little bit of a crazy story, but I deal with this on a daily basis. And 
it's good to put those things out there is to try to bring people back a little bit and to get that risk in perspective and to look at, at like from real science and not from a perceived you know level of risk absolutely so everybody who's out there listening you need to be much more afraid of falling out of your bed so <laughs> much much more afraid and another interesting story that i might add to that if we've got time dan is yeah, absolutely yeah is um I'll get called out to a consultation and I'll, I might encounter a quite risk-averse client who approaches me and says, I would like this tree removed because it, it could kill someone. And I'll assess the tree thoroughly as I do and I'll say, A, this tree doesn't have any unstable defects or a history of branch failure and the area under the tree receives infrequent use. Therefore, our risk is low. And then... A, a typical rebuttal to that would be, no, that's not true. My grandchildren play underneath this tree all the time. And then I retort again, well, well, excuse me, do, do your grandchildren live here? Do your grandchildren sleep? Do your grandchildren go to school? Do your grandchildren ever play on a computer? You see where I'm heading with this and the list gets long. And then mm. if, if we go through this calculation of how frequently the area is occupied underneath the tree, it comes down to about two hours a month. And so, mm. now, and so now we're looking at a person who wanted to remove a tree that has no unstable defects, no history of branch failure, and the area underneath the tree is occupied for two hours a month. And so we're removing a tree for a risk that's almost non-existent. Mm. And then I would add to that is to challenge some of your listeners or some of your listeners to challenge their friends is if we could take the term tree when we're talking about risk and how we we're going to manage that tree, including the removal of a tree and replace the word tree with dog. Yes. And what, what, if we, what if we applied this level of risk management to our family dog? And <laughs> that, that would make this sound quite absurd. If, if a, a dog owner said, I want to put my dog down because I'm worried it's going to bite someone. And you retorted, well, has your dog ever bitten one any, anyone before? No. Does it show any signs of aggression? No, and you can see where I'm heading again with this. It's, it starts to sound quite absurd. And uh, I like mm -hmm. to challenge people with this perception when they're talking about the risk of trees and, again, perceived versus real risk of trees and use pets as an example. Like, would you treat your pet this way based on the information I've given you? Absolutely, Gary. Trees are living things. Absolutely. And I don't want to come across flippant, Dan, and that I do realize that tragedies happen from time to time and I get... Lots of press in the media, as do shark attacks and other similar type things. But the real risk with them is inherently low. And it's important that we have our large trees assessed occasionally by professionals like myself and others and conduct those risks. Removing all the trees doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense, particularly when we talk about climate change. Oh, completely. So, Gary, I've got a bit of a fun question to ask you now. What is a tree? What is a tree? It is a large, woody organism. Well, that's straight to the point. You just nailed it in just a few short, simple words. I'm sure there's more to it than that, but that's one of the ways that I find it defined it as compared to grasses. So trees are typically dicots and as opposed to monocots if we want to get into botany. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree. I think that you've succinctly sort of nailed it there. We had I've asked sort of a few different people that. So I asked um, you know, Recent episode, I've asked Terry and Russell from 
the UK and they sort of were completely stumped by that question. And I also asked uh, John Parker from the Arboricultural Association and he sort of went on with quite a long explanation, several sentences in fact, sort of saying a tree is also the animals that go on it. It's also the professional tree people that work around it, you know, the mycorrhizal fungi and all those sorts of things. But I think that you've given quite a short, succinct uh, explanation of what a tree is. It's a woody organism. I've cheated, Dan, while you were talking. Are you ready for it? Go. I've Googled it, and Google says a woody perennial plant typically having a single stem or trunk growing to a considerable height and bearing lateral branches at some distance above the ground. There you go. There you go. I think parts of that are true, which I'll agree with. But anyway, that's Google's definition. So what would you disagree with? Mm, having branches some distance from the ground. Uh, trees, if we don't prune them in what's called canopy lifting or crown lifting, can have branches that touch the ground. So that's probably the main part. And I would also don't agree on the fact of single stem because many species of trees have more than one trunk or stem, as you would know. Completely. And mm -hmm. I think we have to cut the episode off here because I would love to go into the difference between monocots and dicots, but I think that will have to be a different episode because we've got things like palm trees, which I hope our listeners are going to stay tuned to this podcast because we're going to tell you that, well, palm trees aren't quite like the other trees. That's true. They're technically a grass being a monocot. Hmm. Anyway, stay tuned for that one. Gary, is there anything else that you'd like to tell the listeners about before we wrap this episode up? Yeah, certainly. And one of the things I like to tell people who have any concerns about trees is that is to have their large trees, as we said, inspected on a fairly regular basis every couple of years by a qualified consulting arborist. And we also preferred is to have that qualified arborist is to have someone that does not have any affiliation with tree cutting, tree removals, tree pruning, etc. So you know you're getting sound advice and there's no financial conflict of interest there for that person or the company that they're affiliated to conduct those recommendations, if that makes sense to you and your listeners then. That makes a lot of sense. So that's the sort of company that you work for, isn't it? Yes, and there's other companies in my area and many around Australia. And, and if we're unable to help a client ourselves, those are the those are the types of colleagues and professionals in the industry that we refer people to because they know that we know that they're going to get honest advice. And again, that there's no financial conflict of interest in any recommendations that they might offer. I work for a, a small but growing arboricultural consulting firm in Adelaide, South Australia, called Adelaide Arb Consultants. So, Gary, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope you've given our listeners a lot of good knowledge and advice on sort of what they're looking at when they're looking at risky trees and maybe also brought them back down to earth and let them know that, you know, trees aren't necessarily as dangerous as what you might think, unless you're climbing them, that is. Uh, that, that's right. And that's one of the things I wanted to convey through your program today is that, you know, hey, there is some risk with trees, but we take lots of risks. So there's other risks in life and we can't manage risk to zero. We try to keep those risks to acceptable levels, just like we do with anything else. And trees are just a part of our general life risk management. Thank you, Gary. Much appreciated, mate. It's a pleasure as always, Dan. Thanks for having me back again. It's not uncommon to hear people refer to eucalypts as widow makers, even ones that are perfectly healthy. I hope that after listening to this episode, you might reconsider how you think about all trees, especially our beautiful native Aussie ones. If you do see an unhealthy looking branch, of course you should call in a trained arborist to assess the situation. 
but ask yourself, is it really worth getting rid of an entire tree just because people are constantly interacting with it? In fact, I think it's fair to say that a tree that people are constantly interacting with is an especially valuable tree. If you haven't heard, it's National Eucalypt Day on Tuesday the 23rd of March, and there are events running from around the 6th of March until the 11th of April. Check the show notes for relevant links, including to the Eucalypt Australia website, where you can browse online and in-person events and get amongst it. 